This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Part two of my conversation with the amazing Pia Chattopadhyay. When we left off, we were talking about the murder of George Floyd, and Pia was just about to tell us the impact that it had on her personally. Let's get to it. So how did I feel? Um, Horrified, but not shocked sad <laughs> and sad because it takes the extremes for a lot of people to wake up and I think that is deeply deeply sad like if you need to see a black man get murdered on a camera to tell you the larger story of racism in North America and especially in the United States wow like wow and I will say, and I this is sort of one of my lines that I always say, and look, I love Canada. It has given my family a lot, and I do love this country, and I don't ever want anyone to mistake that or use it against me because it's cheap, frankly. To be critical of something you love is built on trust in some ways, right? Of course. Um, but we have a parlor game in Canada, as I call it, where we love to come out of our houses and stand on our front porches and point to the United States and said, look at those guys, they're worse than us. And I always say, you know what we don't do often enough is turn around, look into our own homes and say, huh, we're not that good either. It isn't a race to the bottom. No, it, exactly. Well, you know, I've, I've written a whole chapter in my upcoming book called The Mythology, Canada's yeah. Mythology on Race, which exactly that, like you said, you called it a parlor game. I call it the the national sport, which is like, wow, we're not as bad as they are. Yeah. Right? And uh, Or if you think you got a bad, go to na- insert country, usually the United States here. It's just, it's just gross. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course... You know, the interesting part is, um, you know, our mythology here in Canada is is a lot of it is based on the fact that we weren't taught <laughs> many of the things, right? When we're th- when we think of black people and the slavery and all that, we have we look to the south and we have a story about you know the emancipation and the war and and uh, Reconstruction and Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement, which is you know a, a rich history of what happened. But even then, a lot of the story wasn't told. Now we look at Canada. You know, when I when I was writing about the the mythology, it's like I said to people, you know, there was slavery in Canada, right? And people go, what are you talking about, right? Do you know that the the treaties with Indigenous people were mostly coerced, right? <laughs> Do you know there were black settlers on the prairies, right? <laughs> exactly, I know, exactly. They came up from uh, Oklahoma. I find this whole like we weren't taught thing 
like I get it on one hand, but on the other, I'm like, it's not so easy just to say, well, no one may inform me of this. Therefore, I can release all my culpability. No, exactly. I don't. I agree with you. That's uh, I mean, there's like there's... saying you're ignorant because like that's what you're really saying. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I was ignorant. OK, uh, I guess. But these stories, a lot of them were hidden. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of them were in plain sight. Like you know, I grew up on the prairies. There are lots of Indigenous um, peoples on the prairies. We didn't say very nice things about them, frankly, to be perfectly honest. I know. Growing up. I'm, as, I'm guilty, too. <laughs> yeah. So am I. I've, I've, I've written about it. I've called it, you know, it's complicated, right? So yeah. you, sometimes you, especially as a young person, you reflect the stereotypes around you. My husband says, said something a couple of years ago. That I think is um, like really interesting the way he put it. And I think, he, I know he's absolutely right. But when we talk about prejudice and racism, he said, you know, the only difference between, and forgive me because I'm going to use some descriptors here, um, the drunk Indian on the street and the drunk white guy in the bar is location. Exactly, exactly. One has class, has, you know, has the ability to be in a bar, accepted in a bar, maybe the money to sit at a bar. But we judge those two exact individuals very differently. It was really like, you know, you talk about these awakenings. Some are monumental and some are just small. Yeah. Well, uh, my one of my Indigenous friends in uh, Victoria, who's uh, been a, really teaching me a lot uh, over the last year, she said the same thing. She said, you know, Stephen, you were talking about Indigenous people in the streets of Victoria who were drunk and falling over, but there was drunk white people falling over. They just were in a house. Yeah right up the street in, yeah. in your Rockland neighborhood, yeah. right? And I thought, exactly, right? So um, there was something you were talking about, awareness and ignorance. Well, you know, as I wrote that article, it's about a year now, about uh, a local businessman who decided it was a good idea to put uh, the sign, all lies matter. This is where maybe we scrap. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> in any case, uh, his whole point was, and, and I just reported really on it, was that he was completely unaware of what it meant. Uh, he was unaware of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was unaware of the I don't know more. He was unaware of Me Too. So he was really living in a bubble. Except, Stephen, and it, like, look, I don't want to relitigate this thing. It sure. has divided this neighborhood, frankly. Yeah. Um, this had a context around it. That sign went up shortly after, I think, if I recall correctly, many months after George Floyd. It was, was about murdered. a month and a half or okay. something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I understand not everyone watches the news and people are busy and putting food on the table and working hard. That's all cool. I really do think like you really had to almost intentionally have your head in the sand to not, if, if you make the case like, oh, who's, maybe you don't even remember the name George Floyd, but you're like, if you didn't know that happened, I, like I just, I just don't know where you were living. An island, like a remote island where there's no access to the internet, walk by a TV, a morning newspaper, at your corner store, like any of that. Like I just I just find it so hard to understand. I, I am that. with you. I mean, the, the interesting part, as you said, the divisive on social media was, uh, you know, he's a racist, burned down his store, et cetera. And then on the other side is I've known him for 25 years. He doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Okay, but I, I will say two things to that. I'm... Somewhere in the middle, where yeah. I usually find <laughs> exactly. myself. That's fine. But you you can never say to someone, I don't think you should say, I've known someone for X amount of time, therefore I know they're not this. Because as Ibram X. Kendi talks about, who 
for people who don't know know him, prolific American thinker, modern day thinker, who yes, comes from a certain vantage point, but uh, well worth delving into. It will give you lots to think about whether you agree with his um, truths yeah. or not. And his book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. How to Be an Anti-Racist, yes. but he has, he has other ones. He has ones for kids. It's, yeah. it's, he's excellent. Anyway, but he says something to the effect of, you know, we shouldn't think of being called a racist as a a, a thing that has to stay, right? Like you can be racist in one moment and anti-racist in the other. And so to say, well, they don't have a racist bone in their body. I mean, that's like saying, I don't see color. Right. It's, it's ignorance, right? Yeah. And so the defense is not, I've known someone and therefore they can't be racist. Gather a group of people in a room and say to them, put up your hand if you're a racist, except for maybe a KKK member who is proud to walk around <laughs> yes. and say, no one's putting up their hand. And I'm always like, why does being called racist or you're racist in a moment or you have, we're all, you know, have prejudice. Why, why does that like set people? It's like the worst thing you can call someone in the world, apparently. And I don't understand that because we are not condemning your entire being. We are saying to you that you have some learning to do. And maybe it's a smaller momentary thing, right? Sure. But that sign to me was interesting uh, for all of those deeper reasons. Uh, he's a nice guy. I, I, okay, fine. He's a nice guy. That doesn't mean he can't also have been racist. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you say that. At, at the end of the day, I had my objective was uh, if you recall, the article was to is really actually this podcast. My book is about um, creating, you know, bridging. Not everyone has the same understanding, right? And so I actually went and spoke to this gentleman. And he's a good community member. He's donated money to the parks, etc. And at the end of the day, you know, I just kind of went, well, I don't know what's in his heart and his mind. But he did tell me he was going to uh, learn take some steps to learn and understand and then he would going to take some action. And then what happened Stephen? Let's 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 just let's uh, just put this out there. Then what happened this year um, after the uh, graves of uh, 215 indigenous children in Kamloops, British Columbia uh, were unearthed the remains of which has you know propelled another reckoning in our country. Which we're going to touch on yeah. before but, we go. But do you but do you want to say what happened in recent months? And again, it's not to condemn this person. I think these are really important conversations to have because you just said, look, I talked to this person. They, they committed themselves to learning and being more aware and things. And then what happened? And I said, I would judge them on that, mm -hmm. right? Um, he put up a sign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it said, so for people who don't know in Canada, uh, sort of orange shirt um, is sort of the symbolic way. Uh, I have issues with just symbolic gestures, but uh, orange shirt because um, it goes back we should be quick about this, but uh, we shouldn't be quick about this, but I will be. Um, uh, for kids who went to residential schools, these are not boarding schools. <laughs> these were children taken away from their homes, Indigenous children, sent away to schools uh, that were uh, financed by the Canadian government, administered by the Catholic Church and other churches where there was great abuse and stuff. Anyway, people wear orange shirts on October 30th, which is Orange Shirt Day here in Canada. And um, there is a saying that goes with that now, which is every child matters. Maybe the intentions were good, but again, it's a it's a mis it's a misunderstanding of the message and the communication that it sends. I believe I need to start pick stop picking on this particular example. But I would say two things: you run a hardware store, just run the hardware store. Um, but two, this is the Canadian problem, as I say. Look, people are really well intentioned. I don't take that away from them. 
But sometimes we do these symbolic things and we don't do it because we think we're doing it for this reason. It makes us feel good. We throw on a ribbon, we throw on a shirt. We say, oh, it makes me feel so sad. The number of people who told me they were crying when the unmarked uh, remains, uh, graves in Kamloops, British Columbia. I, you know, again, these are some of these people, a lot of them are my friends, frankly, or people I know in the community, I should say, in communities. I'm like, are you crying because it makes you feel bad and guilty? Like, what are you crying about? Well, it, it's interesting is that we're just actually going to get in right now because you brought it up. But the so this was kind of you know now we're whatever it was twelve fourteen months after George the George Floyd murder, and now you know COVID's been really taking all the oxygen in the room in regards to people you know taking care of their families and themselves and trying not to get sick and worried about work and money. And then it felt a little bit to me that the the whole reckoning on race was kind of like, you know, simmering down. So 2020? <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Canadian press, the New York Times, you know, they called it mass graves were found on um, uh, a former residential school ground in Kamloops, British Columbia, which is uh, just north of, of Spokane, if you will, for those in America. And all of a sudden, it was, uh, obviously, when I heard the news, it, my heart just dropped. It's awful. Just awful. And thinking, and, you know, they, I think it was, it, they, they thought there could be uh, sites of, of children as young as three. And, and I was just thinking about my children, and I was just, you know, and we won't get, there's more to talk about. But the residential school story is a, is a hundred-year story, right? Yeah, more than and, that, yeah. And, yeah, and, and. Actually, the last residential school only closed in 1996. So what year did you graduate from high school? 1984. Yeah, and right? I'm a 91. Exactly, right? So this is this is current history as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, now it's it's on the world stage. It's a big story. And I'm more hearing... More graves being... Yeah, uh, more resident all over the country. And people are saying, I didn't know anything about this, right? And to your point, what are you talking about? I, See, okay, fair enough. You didn't know anything about it. I'll give you that, okay? Okay. So now what? Exactly. I said, I'm going to read a book. Okay, great. And then what? So this is probably one of the larger conversations my husband and I have. I was really bothered by the reactions I saw when those remains were discovered, although Indigenous peoples had known these stories and knew them for many, many years. um, We just weren't listening. Yeah. It's not that I'm saying you can't be sad and you can express it that way. But my thing is like lighting a candle in the park isn't enough. Yeah, I think it's a good start. I mean, I went to, we had a vigil here. I didn't go. Yeah, there was a community put together. I thought it was really respectfully done. Uh, It was children were there. I think think the intention, everything about it I thought was good, right? But I think to your point is now what, right? And now... There was um, the organizer um, in the neighborhood had actually done the work to say, here's some of the actions you can take. Now, did people take the actions? I don't know. But that's where like intentions are only intentions, right? So what's the work? The legacy of this isn't some historical legacy. If you look statistically at the number of indigenous people in our country who are incarcerated, uh, who have been in in the care of children's aid societies, many of those data points are more than the discrimination and the racism that black Americans face. So I, people are shocked. I literally pull up a chart 
And it's not again to compare, but like when we say, oh, it's not as bad here, uh, it actually is. And no, in some cases, it, worse. It is. And actually, you brought up a point about in care. Did you know more than 50% of Indigenous children are uh, in care? Yeah. Right? Outside of, their, outside of their family in Canada today. Yeah. Right? And so what are you doing? Like, are you writing a letter to your local policy? I don't, like, there are many actions. And I always say about any, uh, I don't like this word, but movement, but like any kind of thing, you need all kinds of people, right? And so this is like, you're the bridge builder guy. And you do need a portion of a pie um, to be that bridge builder. But that's not enough. You need someone, a small contingent, arguably, that is um, more aggressive, if I could put it that way, that no, like not, no. Like the fact that you were ignorant, that's not, don't put that on me, right? I always say there are many ways to light a fire, to burn it all down, as people like to say, <laughs> right? You can use flint, you can use a match or a lighter, and you can use a blowtorch. And you need all of those to change the world. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And it, it's interesting. I think, you know, this, you talked about why people don't like to be called racist. And let's face it, there's been pushback on systemic, the systemic racism. There's no systemic racism, uh, white advantage or white privilege. People took offense to the word privilege, right? And I thought maybe the word privilege is, is, is confusing for some people, which is why I landed on white advantage. But well, why, why do you think, think it's, I mean, people read your book and, and hear your argument. Why do you think it's well, I've heard it. I mean, I, I've spoken to so many people and they go, what are you talking about, Stephen? I don't have any privilege. I came from nothing. I built my business by it's myself. It's so easy. Your privilege is the skin which covers know, but, your bones and your muscles and stuff. But this is what I'm talking about, Pia. I think there's a, there's a disconnect in understandings, right? There's, un, there's a disconnect because people, again, when we're talking about white advantage, they haven't had to do to think about it, right? Just by the nature of the fact they're white. It may not even be their fault, if you will, mm-hmm. right? But now that we're telling you <laughs> this information or we're, it, the information is coming to light, this is the time for purposeful awareness. Okay. Right? That's what I'm saying. Okay. Maybe I'm getting a little haughty. <laughs> <laughs> I have my moments. Uh, look, my job as a broadcaster, um, on the public broadcaster, and that's an important uh, distinction because we are owned and paid for by every taxpayer in Canada, is to represent all of everyone as, as best we can. And of course, someone's going to say, oh, you don't represent blah, 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 whatever. Uh, but that is our job. And my job is to listen. I'm not a talk show host. I'm a listening host um, to inform and educate. But the reality is, Stephen, is that in order to move the dial, getting caught up on terminology is exactly what some people want us to do. Of course. Right, woke is now being hotly debated. Right, even land acknowledgements hotly debated within indigenous communities. And so I think it's super interesting debate. We had the the premier of Quebec take out the dictionary in a press conference to try and parse the word what systemic. Yeah. Meant. So you know when people say to me, and yes, some of my people in my inner sphere have said it to me. Oh, I can't get a job because I'm a white guy. How do you think that makes me feel? Because really what you're saying is maybe, at least part of me, Pia, thinks you got your job because of the color of your skin. Okay. You know what I say to that? Humans have always gotten a job because of the color of their skin. So you got it partially because you had white skin. And I'm getting it now partially because I have brown skin. And when you got your job, the world didn't make you feel like you had to question exactly. for yourself. Good point. 
good how point. much of the color of your skin matters. So these sort of facile arguments about terminologies, I think they're facile, and I think they're a distraction. It's it's purposeful, really. So I'm not here to attack you. I'm, no. I'm trying to change the terminology. I'm just like, I think we got work to do. I know we have work to do. So it's... um. The Twitter debates and stuff, and you know, people say, oh, it's just Twitter or whatever. It leaks, though. It leaks into the real world. Yeah. I, I think the debates on the social shouting networks are, uh, I think it's obviously an important outlet for people, but I don't think that's where action actually moves forward. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I always say, uh, you know, I go be an MC for something, and it's usually like at some fundraising kind of thing or something. So people of means who are there. And I, some of them are a little bit sensitive. Uh, understandably, I guess, in some ways, not understandably in other ways. And so, and I understand I have privilege too. I have class privilege, right? So at the end, my kind of tagline when I say goodnight to everyone, and I work kind of workshop this out in the world because I'd like to see the reactions of people, but if you have privilege, use it for good. I, I agree. I agree. Um, one of the things we're talking about our experiences as young people, brown people, black people, in in white, you know, I, I just go back to me growing up. And when I was talking to this childhood friend last night, you know, he his perception of my life as a young black man living in the house across the street from him was completely uh, a Hollywood fabrication, right? And I know I've shared with you some mm-hmm. of my, you know, my crazy story of actually being, you know. Difficult stories. Exactly, of, of being raised in a white house and with my white stepfather um, being a racist, right? It was kind of like all in the family. I remember when you told me this and I was like, wait, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, you're a biracial man, black man, just because in case people don't know what you look like, you look, you, you got dark skin. Like yes. no one's mistaking you for white. Um, and you're like, yeah, I grew up in this family with white people and my dad, my stepdad was a racist. And I'm like, what do you mean he is a racist? So like we haven't really talked this all out and we don't have time now. Yes. But I think anyone who hears this is doing the same thing that I'm doing, which is like, wait, what? In a line or two, and I know it's so much more complex yeah. and deep than that, but I think it's so important. Well, I'll, I'll give one example, which is maybe superficial in some way because I go further in the book, but just to give you an example, if you grew up on the south shore of Montreal in the 1970s and you you know, loved hockey, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, the Habs, you know, that was your team. You played, uh, you played street hockey. You played, you know, you went to the ice rink and, and you wanted to be, in my era, Guy Lafleur. You wanted to be Jean Beliveau. You wanted to be Ken Dryden, right? And I was a little kid and I wanted to play with the big kids. So I, you know, usually play goalie and take the slap shots of the cold puck or, or ball. And, and of course, I got to the age of eight, nine, and I really wanted to play hockey, real hockey. And my stepfather, who had all these, you know, colonial racist thoughts about, you know, he came from Belgium, from, you know, the Belgians in the Congo. And I remember he, in, it just took a minute for my hockey dream to end. And he said, well, you know, black people have weak ankles and you guys can't play hockey. Sorry. And, oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I remember, even now when I think about it, I just remember going like, and of course, you know, when you're that young, the authority in the house is the authority. And that was it. And 
And I'll land on a positive note as I got to... <laughs> this I, is so you. <laughs> and then I'll turn around. Yeah. This really But I got to story. talk to Ken Dryden, my idol, years ago, about 10 years ago. We had a glass of wine together and we had a chat and he regaled me with all his stories of winning the Stanley Cup and coming home and, and the, the parade. And I, and, and I just thought to myself, like, you know, it's, it's so interesting how paths of people connect. And, and I was able to tell him what he meant to me as a young person. And of course, now we've got the PK Subans and yeah. other black people in the hatch. Got a long way to go you know, still, but there but, we it are. Ju- but it yep. just goes to show you that that you know uh, individual racism, systemic racism, has real impact on people. And we'll go further into that um, in other shows and 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 talk my book. But what I wanted to do is just end with this. PF. first, thank you, but ask you: Are you hopeful for the path to change to happen? <laughs> I have in my drafts in uh, my email uh, a note about performative allyship. I'm going to read you some of it in a sec, but am I hopeful? Uh, my husband would tell you, you know, you do the whole um, glass half empty, glass half full thing. His glass is uh, mostly uh, for uh, ha- half full. And I would say, well, mine is half empty. He said, babe, yours isn't half empty. I'm like, oh, great. He's going to see me as more positive. And he's like, your glass has fallen off the table and crashed on the floor and you're picking up the pieces. I am not cynical, but I am skeptical. So can a skeptic be hopeful? I think hope is so easy to say. I'm hopeful because it's like, what's the work? And so hence this email. Uh, and I'll, you know, it was, it was literally after, um, the Kamloops stuff that I wrote this note to myself, uh, cause I was angry. Uh, I was angry about not only what had happened, obviously, but about the reactions and how simple it looked to me. Um, exactly. And I was going to say, I, I have, I've wrote this story because, you know, upon that, I was hearing, because it was around Canada Day, if you recall. Yeah, it right? was made. Uh, yeah. And then, right? then and there then, were subsequent Yeah, And then people and then the First yeah. Nation elders throughout the country were asking people to maybe, you know, subdue their Canada Day celebrations. And people go, now I'm trying, they're can- trying to cancel my fireworks. Yeah. Nonsense. I don't know. <laughs> See, again, that was like, it's so easy to say, oh, don't do fireworks on Canada and people feel good about themselves. Oh, I didn't go to Canada Day celebrations. I'm doing something. You're not really doing anything that's meaningful. Maybe that's making you feel good. So you and I disagree on this. No, I, I'm, all I'm saying is I don't have an issue with people trying to, but my point is, is the, 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 the outrage that people had that, that their fireworks were possibly being taken away from them. There was not, there didn't seem to be any reflection of the horrible nature of the news and the fact that these children, right, had uh, this, this horrible, like um, we're talking about thousands of children mm-hmm. who disappeared, were either and possibly and, and abused and killed or died of neglect. And that you can't even reflect for a moment on that. I hear you. But I also get that one of the risks of that is that that's all people do is don't do Canada Day this year or put on an orange shirt. I hear that you. does not change the lives for the better of many Indigenous yeah. people. But maybe for many people, Pia, it's their first step. Well, I hope so. But I, I worry that it might be their last. So I just jotted this down. So it, it may sound angry <laughs> that I really am. But, uh, you know, after holding a candle or going on a march, what did you do next and next and next? So those are the steps. Take a stock, take stock of it a year later. And so keep yourself accountable. So that's kind of one thing you can do. Um, when you go to a restaurant, ask the white owner why all the BIPOC people are in the back and why all the white people are in the front of the house. That often happens unless you go to a quote unquote ethnic restaurant, right? 
Um, If you only feel sad when an easily condemnable event happens, question your allyship. Your tears are not enough. And I always think that silly song, your tears are not enough. But it's really true. Your tears aren't enough. Saying this isn't my country, which is something we hear all the time. This isn't my country. You know, in terms of like, this is not reflective of my country. Like, this is not who we are. Um, I can't stand that. Yeah. This is who you are. And saying we need to change isn't enough. Consistently be part of the change. Um, honestly, ask yourself how many BIPOC people you actually have real bonds with. So this isn't the one, my one black friend, Stephen Dorsey. Um, this is about real bonds and really being able to chew over with one another, not just your differences in a, hey, share your story with me, but to tangle with that, right? And to have empathy, yes, but to, to help make yourself better, right? Yeah. Uh, what else I got on this list? Yes, read and get educated and then pass that education on to someone else in your family and beyond. So knowledge. Needs to be passed along. Absolutely. Silence is is what is killing so many people today. If you feel uncomfortable speaking up and out, you might want to think that you're an enabler. So those were in my angry days. uh, And I still am. I I mean, I still at the core believe all those. Maybe I'd say them a little more diplomatically uh, and probably should think them through a little bit more for myself. I am not here to say that I am perfect or I do all these things on a regular because someone's going to say, well, what do you do? Uh, I don't do enough, frankly, because none of us. I would argue, is really doing enough. But this is a good checklist to check for yourself, right? You don't go tell anyone this thing. Just check it, right? I need to do more. Like, I, I kind of cop out and say, well, my job does a lot of this, yes. right? And it does. Like, it really does. And that's important. And that's intentional on my part um, to talk about these things, to get different perspectives, to chew over them, to illuminate, to listen, most importantly. But I got to do more. So... I'm not sitting on some pedestal. I'm sitting on a very comfortable chair, but I am not um, sitting on some pedestal trying to preach here. Although I think some preaching sometimes is a good thing. But um, these are good. This is what I like about when we talk. I, I, this is what I like about your book. Um, I respect your bridge building, and I would put myself in that same demographic. Maybe it's partially generational. I don't know. Uh, and I question that sometimes, right? When you said like the older generation doesn't like talking about it, maybe our, our generation is a little more, I guess we're Gen Xers. Are you Gen X? Yes, yeah, Gen, Gen Xer, X, yeah. yeah. Are trying to do what we Gen Xers do, which is play the middle. And then the younger generations are more determined and intentional and judgmental, but maybe born out of a good place. I don't know. I Yeah, and actually, and if we look at our children, they seem to be navigating a world, at least in their little world, that they are now in a way that, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're protected by some things, but they seem to, I see my children there, they, you know, as much yeah. as there's diversity in yeah, our Yeah, I know, but, you know, uh, and we didn't get a chance to talk about our kids. Our kids are all young, right? I have a daughter who's uh, just turned into, in double digits, and then we all have like single digit kids. And there are five kids between you and I. But, you know, <laughs> One of my turkeys, one of my little boys uh, said to me, you know, and maybe this happened to you with your kids uh, when he was a little younger. He's only eight now, but, um, you know, he didn't like my brown skin. And how come the rest of us are all white? Uh, oh, gosh, you know, I think the fact that you even still notice, like, notice that. He, again, it's, so you talk about intention. That was not intentionally discriminatory, of but it not. is. Of course not. But, you know. Same kid also has said to me, you know, we always say you're half Indian, right? Because uh, that's, I guess, how we, if we had to calculate, that's what they are. Uh, and my kid once said to me, I'm white on the inside, but I'm Indian on the inside. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I said, yeah, my, my bones are brown. 
That's right. <laughs> it's I, like they're not, but um, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I don't know. Am I hopeful? Sure. I mean, much more prolific writers than I am would say without hope, there's nothing, and write it more prolifically than that. I'm hopeful, but I'm nervous. Yes, we but got I, work to do. I, I can I can assure you, my sense of you is that you are hopeful, because, <laughs> and the reason is we continue to talk and have conversations. Because if we weren't hopeful, we wouldn't have those conversations. Fair enough. If that's the definition of hope, yeah. Without us talking to one another, we're not going to get very far. Pia, I told you this was going to be an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, look forward to more conversations on the on the way to school, <laughs> dropping off our kids. Yeah. Thank you. That was Pia Chattopadhyay, my guest on Black and White. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. We have more interesting voices scheduled for upcoming episodes. Follow me on social media at DorseyBNW. You can visit evergreenpodcast.com to learn more. You can also pre-order your copy of Black and White in all the major online bookstores today at Indigo, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, available throughout North America. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our producer and sound designer, Noah Fouts, and executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey, asking you to reflect on how we can all be better, do better, and hopefully find the many paths towards all living better together. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.